Continuing in our series in 1 Peter, we're going to be in 1 Peter 3, and we're, we're going to be in 1 Peter 3, 8 today. Um, one verse, it's a verse with a lot of words that I'm guessing are very familiar to most of us. They're common words, they're words that we use in our own language, that we see throughout Scripture, but they're words that I can't help but wonder if we've heard them so often that we've forgotten the significance of them. So we're going to take time and we're going to go through this verse and really look at what is called of us as believers, what Peter is writing to the church to remind them of. And so with that in mind, since it's only one verse, it's going to be up on the screen and we're all going to read it together. And so this is 1 Peter 3, 8. Finally, all of you... Okay, we're going to read it together. (laughs) Maybe we need to start with a reminder of the word together. Together means more than just me. So we're going to read it together, and we're going to start with that first word, finally. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you, for, uh, thank you for laughter. Thank you for family. Thank you for the absolute privilege it is to come under your word, to submit to it, to learn from it, to be cut by it, to be molded by it. Lord, thank you for the example of Jesus. Teach us how to imitate him. Sanctify us, Lord. Make your bride holy. In this time, God, we give you whatever burdens we brought with us this morning, whatever weights are weighing on us today, whatever distractions. Lord, if necessary, block the cell phone signals so that we can't even get interrupted by a message or an email. We want to be before you, wholly surrendered and given to you. Speak in this time, Lord. Lead us in this aspect of worship as we desire to know you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble mind. Common words, common phrases. Do we know them? Do we understand them? We need to. Because we need to be cut by these words. We need to be shaped by these words. We need to conform to these words. And so we're going to start just right there at the beginning. Unity of mind. And a key aspect of this, an element that I want to make sure we do point out, is he is not saying uniformity of mind. He is not saying that, okay, all of you have to have the exact same thought on everything in every single way. My wife, my wife is my best friend. We agree on so many things. We do not have uniformity of mind. She thinks olives are fantastic. I cannot wrap my head around why anyone would eat an olive of their own free will. We do not have uniformity of mind. We have unity of mind. We have looked at what is important. We have looked at what is true. We have looked at what is foundational. And we have said, okay, we are unified on these things. This is where our unity lies. This is what Peter reminds the church of. If you ever heard the phrase major in the majors, Jesus is the only way to heaven. If you want to be a part of this church family, you have to believe that. If you don't want to believe that, you are welcome to come. You're welcome to watch. You're welcome to engage. But if you're going to be a part of this church family, you have to believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. I'm guessing that we have people in this church family who would prefer to have an organ up on stage. Maybe they'd want more piano. Maybe they want no instrument. Like that, okay, we can disagree on that. That's fine. You don't need to divide a church over that. 
So we have to identify what is essential, what is integral, and then we have to stick to that. This is what he's calling the church to when he says unity of mind. And you see this throughout Scripture as well, Romans 15.5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with, Jesus, with Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Philippians 2, 1 and 2, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. We've made division to be a very ugly word, and I think it's because we've allowed ourselves to divide over so many petty things. Because you do see, and I want to make a careful note of this, that unity of mind is not affirmation of unrepentant sin or tolerance of unrepentant sin. It's not affirmation of heresy. It's not tolerance of heresy. Read 1 Corinthians 5. Read 2 John. There is absolutely a time and a place where division is appropriate and right. But we've divided over so many small things that now we're terrified of the very idea, the very word of division. And so this verse gets twisted and distorted and used to say, well, you're being divisive when you try and hold me accountable to the truth. No. The church must be united in the truth. Only true, uni or true unity only comes in Jesus. So if there's a divergence from Jesus, if there's a divergence from the integrity of God's word, then unity is not even possible. So what he's saying here is be united in mind, have unity in Christ, in truth. And that's where the church must be today. This doesn't mean we stop loving the people. This doesn't mean we stop being nice to them, we stop being friends with them. But when we look at division and we look at unity of mind, there's two sides. We have to recognize, okay, what are we called to be united in? And if it's not one of these foundational things, then am I willing to be humble enough to respect someone who disagrees with me? But if it is a major thing, am I firm enough in my convictions to stand for the truth, even if it means a division? Because there is no longer unity of mind in truth is the first thing Peter lays out in his letter. And then he moves on to a word sympathy. And the specific use of sympathy, it comes from a larger Greek root word that you see in Romans 8, 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, that, that suffers that, the root word, in order that we, should, we may also be glorified with him. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, 27, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So from that root word, we get this word, sympathy. And this is a word that, again, is very common in English language. But we have to keep in mind here, in this section of the letter, Peter is writing to, he's talked to the church about their relationship with spouses. He's talked to the church about their relationship to governing authorities. He's going to talk to the church about their relationship to a hostile, unbelieving world in the next coming verses. But in this verse, he's talking about the church's relationship to one another as the body. And so he's talking about sympathy. And what this word translated means, it means suffering or feeling the like with one another. One commentary said, you can basically sum it as fellow feeling. And so what we have to look at when we look at this word sympathy, when we consider our relationship to the body as one another, I believe it's summed up in Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. 
Because if we're incapable of doing one or the other, we're neglecting a beautiful aspect of the body. Weep with those who weep. If you're familiar with the story of Job, a man who lost everything, who was afflicted with tremendous trauma, his friends didn't get it very right frequently. But I think one of the most beautiful things that you see about friendship is when his friends first get there. And when his friends first arrive, they just sit in the ashes with him and they cry with him. Weep with those who weep. Weights are so much easier to lift if you're not the only one lifting it. Allow the church to bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6, in so doing, fulfill the law of Christ. Have sympathy for someone else's pain. Recognize that, yeah, you know what, I might have my own pain, but that doesn't neglect the fact that you have your pain. I've shared this story before, but again, a reminder of this, because we've been trained in a lot of ways to downplay this. There was a last fall, Adeline and I, my wife and I, we were doing a work day at our house, mulching, weeding, also, and if you know, I mean, bags of mulch, that's no fun, right? Like, nobody likes carrying bags of mulch. So we've been working six, seven hours outside on a Saturday. We go, we pick up the mulch, we get home. The last step is to unload all these bags. We're like, we're doing, we're spreading the rest of the mulch tomorrow. We're bone tired. We're in the car, we're driving home, and she's like, man, I am exhausted. And then before I could say anything, she even goes, oh my goodness, I'm so, I'm so sorry I said that. I know you were carrying way heavier things today. I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that to you. I'm sorry. And I, I stopped and I was like, hon, why? How does my exhaustion negate the fact that you are also exhausted? Just, the, just because I'm tired doesn't mean that you can't also be tired. So yeah, we all have the own things in our lives that we're carrying, but if a brother or sister in Christ comes to you and says, hey, I am weeping over this, we have to be able to lay aside our ego and say, I will weep with you. My weight does not negate yours. We must be sympathetic in this regard. But the other thing we see in Romans 12 is that we should be able to rejoice with brothers and sisters who are rejoicing. Because it's also fairly egotistical if you come to me and you're like, hey, I'm rejoicing over this wonderful thing. Celebrate with me. And I'm like, no, because I've got stuff in my own life that's heavy. So I'm not going to rejoice with you. We have to be sympathetic in our ability to celebrate with those who are celebrating. To be joyful with those who are joyful. And allow that to lift us up. Right? If you're having a bad day, what helps? Hearing good news. Hearing that somebody's having a good day. So a church that is sympathetic is going to be a body of believers who, when Troy is weeping, I can sit in the ashes and I can weep with him. And when Troy is pumped up and celebrating, I can get pumped up and celebrate with him. Why? Because we have sympathy for one another. And vice versa. Peter calls the church to this. So we have to ask ourselves, okay, because when we say things like, oh, well, you know, I'm just not a sympathetic person. Well, we're called to be. So we need to be growing in this. We need to be saying, okay, am I sympathetic? Because we see that Jesus weeps. We see that Jesus celebrates. We see that Jesus feels emotions, that he relates to people. So if we're imitating Jesus, we have to do the same. And as Peter continues, he comes to really what drives sympathy. Brotherly love. 
In this admonition, in this call, in this charge to the church, he includes brotherly love. And this is a recurring theme within the letter. In, in chapter 1, in chapter 2, in chapter 4, in chapter 5, and we're in chapter 8. So in five straight chapters, Peter makes sure to include brotherly love. And again, this is something that we hear a lot. But I want to make sure we stop, we pause, and we really consider. How many people would say family is important? Family matters. Good. I'm glad a lot of hands went up. Family is. Family is important. Family matters. We rearrange our schedule for family. We put high priority on family. We recognize the, the centrality of family in our lives. We have to learn to look at the church as family. We have to recognize that I have been called your brother. You have been called my brother. They have been called your brother, your sister. This is a family. This is what he calls us to. There's accountability. There's ownership for one another's lives. There's concern for one another's lives. We love strangers. We're called to love strangers, right? But if I see somebody in Kroger who's clearly having a bad day, I'm not always inclined to go over and check on them because I don't know them. There's no relationship. Now, those are great opportunities to go. If you see somebody having a bad day in public, go over and talk to them. There's great opportunities there. But there's a difference between a stranger that you pass in the store and when you show up to gather with the body of Christ and there's someone who is in your family. You want to rejoice with your family members. You want to celebrate with your family members. When I passed ordination, who was the first people I told? My family. When something bad happens, who are the first people to know? My family. Peter reminds the church of brotherly love, of familial love. John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Philemon 1, 7, for I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brothers, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Hebrews 3, 12, and 13, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another in all the more as you see the day drawing near. You cannot read Scripture and not come away with an understanding or an appreciation of God's design for the body. To be together, to love one another, to challenge one another, to lift one another up, to encourage one another, to exhort one another. Guys, we, we need each other. I can promise you that before Jesus comes back, things are only going to get harder for the church, whether that's tomorrow or a hundred years from now. The answer is not withdrawal from the body. The answer is not distance from family. And if, if we, and, and I, 
I, I say this strongly, but I think this church is really doing a great job of growing in this daily, it seems. It has been such a blast over the last couple of years to watch this church draw close together and just become increasingly close-knit. I mean, it, is, it brings joy to my heart. So let me encourage you all in this, that we are loving watching this family grow closer. Let me exhort you all in this to continue to pursue your family. Back when we introduced the idea of relentless pursuit, we identified three things. Relentless pursuit of Jesus, relentless pursuit of one another, and relentless pursuit of the lost. Continue to relentlessly pursue this family with love. Think about what Peter wrote earlier where he said, love one another earnestly. That word, that idea of being stretched to your capacity. As we continue to love this family, there are beautiful blessings in that. And so Peter reminds the church of this all-important goal, this all-important aspiration, this all-important endeavor. And then in that, so as these are building on one another, right? In order to have sympathy with one another, there needs to be a brotherly love. There needs to be that affection for one another. But then in that, with this next word, or this next idea, keep in mind that he is talking about inter-family relationships. What does it mean to have guts? If I say, man, Tim is just, Tim is a gutsy guy. He lives with guts. What's that mean? Brave. Bold, courageous, right? That's what we associate in our language with living with guts, is bravery, boldness. Everybody agree? Yeah? All right. Keep that in mind as we get to this next idea that Peter includes. He says tender-hearted. He calls the church to have a tender heart in their interfamily relationships. Luke 1, 76 through 78. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. That's not the same word that's used here in, in Peter, 1 Peter, but it's the same idea. Then in Ephesians 4, 32, you do see the same word. The same word that Peter uses we see in Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This word, tender-hearted, this idea, it comes from two words, one meaning good and one meaning the visceral organs, your guts. So to live with guts is to live tender-heartedly. To live tender-heartedly is to live mercifully and forgiving. Because here's the deal. We can either be perfect in our relationship to one another, and I can never say the wrong thing to Mark, and I can never do the wrong thing according to Mark and Laura, and I can be perfect in every single one of my interactions with Mark and Laura. Or they can be tenderhearted to me, knowing that I am not perfect. And Mark and Laura can be perfect in their interactions with me, or I can be tender-hearted in my interactions with Mark and Laura, knowing that they're not perfect. So church, family, ask yourself, are you perfect in the way you interact with one another? No. So would you appreciate it if the church was tender-hearted towards you? Yes. 
So then let's make sure we are tender-hearted towards one another. The church is beautiful. The church is, it's like my favorite thing. The church is made up of broken, messy people, and I'm leading that parade. So we need to be tender-hearted towards one another as we're going to get hurt by the church. We might feel neglected by the church. We might feel overlooked by the church. We might feel insulted by somebody in the church family. Man, they said that. Don't they know what I've been through? That was so degrading. That was so insulting. That was so belittling. That brought up so much pain. Probably going to happen if it hasn't already. So when we get to those places, we can either be tender-hearted and we can extend mercy and forgiveness and we can imitate God and we can imitate Jesus or we can neglect to have a tender heart. We can neglect to live with guts. I think bravery still applies. I think you've got to be bold to extend mercy and forgiveness even when the other person wrongs you. There's courage in that. To follow Jesus' example when so many influences and so many voices will tell you, oh, you have a right to be bitter in this situation. You have a right to be angry. You have a right to be resentful. You were really grievously wounded by that. It's okay to hold it back a little bit. Ah, we're called to be tender-hearted. So let's be a church that's tender-hearted as we look at our family with sympathy, with love, with affection, with a unity of mind. And then he concludes with what I think really ties it all together. He concludes with a humble mind. Because humility undergirds all these other things. I mean, think about it. Unity of mind. We agree on the big stuff. We agree on the stuff that we have to agree on. You tell me I can't wear jeans in church. I tell you I can. Well, clearly I'm not wrong because I am brilliant. So you must be wrong, so I'm leaving to start my own church. Is there humility in that? We have, to be humil we have to be humble, not at the expense of theological accuracy, not at the expense of scriptural truth, but we have to be humble as we exchange ideas with one another in governing board meetings and elder meetings, as we discuss ideas at Bible study. One of my favorite things about the men's Bible study, and I shared this with the women the one week when I went just to encourage them, and from what I heard, it was similar at the women's Bible study. I loved how many people were willing to say, yeah, you know what, I don't understand what this passage means, but I want to. And the rest of the room was like, yeah, okay, cool, let's figure it out together. We've got to be humble to have unity of mind. Sympathy. We've got to be humble to say, yeah, you know what? I've got my own weights. I've got my own burdens, but you're grieving. I'm going to grieve with you. Yeah, I've got my own weights. I've got my own burdens. You're rejoicing. I'm going to rejoice with you. If there's no humility, we're not going to engage in that. Brotherly love. You need humility for love. You need humility for tenderheartedness. You wronged me. You know what? I'm not the most important person in the world, and I know I have wronged plenty of people myself. I will forgive you. And really, God forgave me. I mean, my forgiveness flows from a heart that was forgiven from, by the Lord. I have sinned most grievously against God more than any other person in this world, and He forgave me. 
So in light of that, yeah, who am I to withhold forgiveness? He concludes with a humble mind. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 1 Peter 5, 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So what is humility? How do we keep ourselves in this? It's hard. It is, it is hard to stay in humility. You get one compliment and your mind runs wild with it. Sam, man, that was a really good sermon last week. I really appreciated that. Hey, hun, I'm the best preacher ever. That's what they said to me. Single greatest preacher who's ever lived. Did they really say that? Well, I mean, I'm like paraphrasing, but I'm sure that's what they meant. You do a good job at work. I'm the man. You do a good job at home. I'm the man. I'm the best. It is hard to stay humble. It's hard to stay humble when we're in the right and somebody else is in the wrong and is accusing us. I've shared with you some of the stories of my first job straight out of college where I rejected this embarrassingly and horrifically and thank God for his mercy and forgiveness. When my boss came to me and said, hey, will you do work on your honeymoon? I was not humble in my response to him. Now, how many of you would say that I'm in the right to say, no, I'm not going to do work on my honeymoon? Yeah, I'm in the right. Didn't give me the right to not be humble in my response. So humility is hard to stay in. Why do you think we push so hard with so much enthusiasm and so much joy for this to be a church centered in Scripture, grounded in Scripture, rooted in Scripture? My desire for our lives is that we would be people of the Word. Because what do we see? That Scripture helps us in this. Tenney's Bible Dictionary describes humility as freedom from pride, meekness. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-6 says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Allowing God to use His Word as a sword to cut away what is ugly in us. Conformity to Scripture when done with the right heart. This isn't done with a pharisaical mind of, I'm just going to memorize more verses than you, then I'm a better person than you. No, no, it's done with, I want to know Jesus. I want to look like Jesus. I want to be molded to look like Jesus. I want to submit to God. But conformity to Scripture guards against this. Listen to these passages. This is 1 Corinthians 4, 6 and 7. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Reading that verse reminds me to be humble. 
2 Thessalonians 2.15, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. 1 Timothy 3.14 and 15, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Knowing Scripture reminds us of humility. Living by Scripture reminds us of how we are called to live, of the humility that must be a hallmark of the Christian's life. Paul, greatest missionary evangelist of all time, right? Paul writes in Romans 7, Wretch that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul writes, Jesus came to die for sinners of whom I am the worst. Man, if Paul describes himself as the worst, I don't even have the words for the adjective to describe me. So knowing this, living according to this, meditating on this day and night, delighting in His Word, longing for His Word, longing to hear from Him through His Word, keeps us grounded in these things. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If we need to be corrected in terms of arrogance, turn to Scripture. If we need to be corrected in terms of brotherly love, in terms of tenderheartedness, turn to Scripture. I mean, it's so kind and good of God to give us His Word for these things. So as we consider this, as we consider applying this, learning to live by this, this week, let's all read John 17 and Philippians 2. As we consider these ideas of unity of mind, Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Read John 17 and Philippians 2. Look for the themes of this. Pick out a color of a highlighter. Maybe it's orange. You go to 1 Peter 3 and you, you highlight these words in orange. And then when you get to John 17, you say, oh, hey, there's a lesson of unity of mind. Highlight it in orange so you can train yourself to see the threads connecting, see Scripture weaving together. And then the prayer idea as we continue to grow in prayer, learning how to pray, modeling our prayer after what we see in Scripture, how does this passage lead us to adore God, to praise God? How does this passage lead us to confess to God? How does this lead us to thank God? What does this lead us to ask God for in our lives? To continue to grow in prayer, to become familiar with it, to become intimately acquainted with prayer, to delight in prayer, to desire prayer. And then the connect as we seek and strive to be that family in relentless pursuit of one another. Let's go back to Hebrews. Hebrews 10. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, encouraging one another. So reach out to someone from the church for two purposes. To give them encouragement and to stir them up to good works. To stir them up to love. Let's continue to do these things. The prayer is simple. May we be like Jesus. May we learn from Him. May we learn from His Word. 
May we submit to it. May we be a church that has unity of mind, but not at the expense of truth. May we be a church that is sympathetic. May we be a church that is overflowing with brotherly love. May we be a church that is overflowing with tenderheartedness. May we be a church that is humble. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the high standard that you call us to and for the model that you set for us. Lord, give us the heart of Christ. Unite us in truth. God, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. May we be a church united in truth and united in mission. May we be a church that is sympathetic. Soften our hearts. Teach us to rejoice with those who rejoice. Teach us to weep with those who weep. May we be a church of brotherly love. May this be a family that knows one another, that cares for one another, that pursues one another. May we be a church that is tender-hearted, knowing that we're not perfect, appreciating the forgiveness and mercy that you have shown to us and extending that forgiveness and mercy to one another. And may we be a church that is humble, seeking to serve one another, to elevate and honor one another. May we be your bride worthy of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Around the glassy sea
thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons. First Peter one fourteen. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Lord, make your church holy. Lead us in this. Lead us in this this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Everyone, Pastor Sam here. Thanks for joining us for a Sunday sermon. If you're interested in more of the sermons from this series or some of our past sermon series that we've done, you can find them at discovercommunity.org under the sermon file. Uh, otherwise, you can subscribe to this channel to make sure you stay up to date on all our content. Thanks for joining us.